We are grateful, as always, for our wonderful chancel choir and their leadership and music, and grateful especially today for our chancel ensemble that have helped to strengthen uh, our worship and provide a beautiful music prior to worship as well. Whether you were in church here or anywhere else, I suspect, last week, you heard or at least were invited to explore the story of the empty tomb. Here in our worship, we considered the story of the empty tomb both back at the original occurrence of Jesus' time, but also those empty tombs of our lives today. The way that resurrection continues to be played out in the living of these days. Resurrection that sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, shows up in moments that have no words attached to them at all. Moments that we might encounter while sitting at places like the baggage claim of Hartsfield and watching families reunite, perhaps for the first time in a long time. Moments like we talked about that may involve a child asleep as you rock it in the dark stillness after a long, sometimes very long day. Moments that come when we sing at the edge of a grave. So if last week we were talking and focusing on the story of the empty tomb itself, The scriptures seem to switch us this week to a question. And the question is, if the tomb is empty, then what are you going to do about it? If the tomb is empty, then what are you going to do about it? It's interesting that our gospel reading, this reading from the 20th chapter of John, whereas Other texts in the lectionary each Sunday on that three-year cycle, they change every single Sunday. It's the same story every year on the second Sunday of Easter. It is this account of the disciples encountering Jesus after his resurrection. The only story similar to this one that might be more famous is the disciples meeting Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Our story today, though, is equally impactful. It is the story of disciples, people like us, huddled in a room, afraid. So, friends, let us listen once more for a word from God here in these verses from the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. On the evening of the first day of that week, first day after resurrection, When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. After Jesus said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
Now Thomas, who was also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples, they told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and unless I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples, they were again in the house, and Thomas was with them that time. And though the doors were still locked, Jesus came and he stood among them, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. You see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But but these, rather, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon is titled, He Ain't Heavy. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we gather today in a world that is full of such heaviness as people living lives that are so heavy at times. God, we pray that you might use this time to lighten that weight, if only a little. That you might use this time to open our hearts, that we might see through our doubt, through our fear, through our questions. And that in doing so, we might glimpse you. Indeed, O God, we pray that through your spirit, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's amazing in this story that there's just so much in it. It's hard to sort of figure out where to begin. You begin with these disciples who Jesus appears to. They're all locked up in a room. That alone is an image, is it not? And Jesus comes and they see and they believe. But, but one poor person, Thomas, he, he misses it. And so then we move on to this other part of the story where finally a week later Thomas is there this time and Jesus shows up and Thomas sees and he touches and he believes. There's so much going on in this story that it's hard to sort of figure out where we slow down and let our eyes rest, where we we pause and, and focus on. Anytime I encounter stories like that or or these scriptures that seem to be so full I don't even know where to begin, what I'll try and do is get a read on the pulse of the story. 
What's the thrust of this story? What's the main thing it's trying to get across? And if I were to describe to you what I find to be the thrust of this story, the heartbeat of it, if you will, it is a story of Jesus after his death, after his resurrection, coming to a group of people, people who do look a lot like us. And he's basically saying to them, folks, I'm here. It's, it's real. So what are you going to do about it? You see, if last week the story was a statement about the tomb being empty, this week it shifts us to that question. If the tomb is empty, then what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to stay here locked up in your room? <laughs> Are you going to stay locked up in, in your minds, in your own lives, your own fears, your, your own troubles? Are you going to stay locked up on your own islands? Or are you going to get out? Are you going to live as if I'm here, as if it's real? Are you going to live for and with others? There's this amazing painting. It's about 40 years old now. It was created by this well-known artist based in Atlanta named Gilbert Young. It's perhaps one of his best-known pieces, and it's one of the best-known works of African-American artwork in the last half-century plus. If your pastor had perhaps been more forward-thinking, this artwork would be on the bulletin cover today, but... I arrived at it a little bit too late for that, so we're going to have to use our imaginations. In this piece, at the top of the canvas, you see a man leaning over and reaching down so that all you see is the top of his head and and his arm extended downward as if he's reaching over the edge of a, a skyscraper or something like that. And at the bottom of the canvas, you see just an arm and a hand reaching up. And there's, there's space between the hands. They haven't yet joined. Gilbert Young titled this piece of art, He Ain't Heavy. And in his description of it, he, he talks about why he created it. He says, I created this, this piece to express an idea. And the idea is that whoever you are, wherever you are in life, you have the ability to reach back and help somebody else. And not just the ability, he says, you have the obligation. Whoever you are, wherever you are in life, you have the obligation to reach back and help somebody else. It's interesting, I heard an interview with Young, and he was talking about this piece, and And he says in the interview that for him, the most important part of this piece of art is the space between the hands. He says, I intentionally left the hands apart with space in between because I wanted the viewer, I wanted all of us to have to engage it. To have to make a decision for ourselves whether or not those arms, those hands, whether or not they ever join. In a lot of ways, I think the second Sunday of Easter is all about the space between those hands. 
I think in particular that Jesus is teaching in this story that Easter happens when we bridge that space. You see, Thomas and, and the others, right, in this story, they're, they're all huddled in fear, even though they've already heard the news. They were in church last Sunday, in other words. They, they've heard the news that the tomb is empty, and yet they're still there behind locked doors, huddled in fear. And Jesus comes saying and doing just about everything he can think of to convince them that they have to get out, that they have to reach out. How many times does he talk about peace? Peace be with you. He's trying to calm their nerves. He tells them, here, if it helps you realize that I'm real, just touch my wound. He breathes upon them his Holy Spirit. Listen, if you go out from this place, you're not going to be alone. I'm with you. My Holy Spirit is with you. He, he teaches about forgiveness. Listen, guys, I forgive you. Now go out and forgive others. He's teaching that he's here. He's real. But for any of it to matter, for this Easter stuff to matter, then you got to get out and live it. It reminds me of a story about this woman whose name is Jennifer Thompson and a man whose name is Ronald Cotton. Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton, they met for the first time in 1984 in a police lineup. Now, Jennifer... She didn't think it was their first meeting. She thought it was their second. But in fact, time would tell this police lineup was their first meeting. Jennifer had been attacked in her home a week earlier. And after the attack, she had provided an eyewitness account to the police that allowed them to create a sketch that in turn allowed them to put together a lineup for Jennifer to come in and identify the perpetrator of this crime. And so a week after this, this horrible event in her life, she found herself in this room looking eye to eye with the person who had attacked her. And his name was Ronald Cotton. The police asked her that day, they said, are you sure? 100%, she said. That's the man who attacked me. And again, in the trial, they asked her, are you sure? 100%. That's him. And in the retrial, are you sure? 100%. Even when another man in a different jail, having been arrested for a different crime, confessed to the attack, and they brought him into court, and they asked her, is this the man who attacked you? 100%. No. Ronald Cotton. Most people agree that Ronald Cotton was found guilty almost entirely based on the certainty Jennifer Thompson had in her eyewitness testimony. And he went to jail. For ten and a half years, he was a prisoner in the North Carolina state prison system. In 1995, though, there was a new technology, DNA, that had come onto the scene and the defense for Ronald Cotton had successfully petitioned the court to resubmit some of the evidence to be analyzed according to this 
new technology. And it wasn't long after they ran the evidence through the DNA that the result came back 100%. Ronald Cotton was not your attacker. Cotton became the first person in the state of North Carolina to be exonerated for a crime because of DNA evidence. He was cleared of all charges and released from prison. On the day she got the news, Jennifer Thompson described how she felt this paralyzing, debilitating, suffocating guilt and shame. She said, I'd been the victim for 11 years, and Ronald had been the bad person for 11 years. And now, suddenly, our roles were switched. After his release from prison, it was arranged for Ronald and Jennifer to meet one another. And they met not far from where the attack itself had taken place all those years earlier, but they met appropriately enough in in a church. And Jennifer Thompson describes how when Ronald walked into the room that day, she physically could not stand up. She said, I just started to sob. I looked at him in that church Basement, and I said to him, if I spend every minute of every hour of every day for the rest of my life telling you that I'm sorry, can you ever forgive me? Ronald Cotton that day did the one thing that Jennifer Thompson did not think was possible. She didn't even imagine it as a possibility. She says that in that moment, Ronald started to cry. And he said to her, Jennifer, I forgave you years ago. She describes that moment as if she was being fused back together. She says, these parts of me that had been broken for so long came back together. It was like I was literally, she says, literally looking in Ronald Cotton and seeing God's grace and mercy. He was sitting in front of me that day, grace and mercy. And then she says this. She says, Ronald Cotton gave me back my life that day. Last week we talked about the tomb being empty. This week we ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? You see, Ronald Kahn, he had a choice. He had the ability, if he, if he wanted to, to simply harbor, and rightfully so, hatred. To sit there for the rest of his days and fantasize about all the ways he could get revenge, not just on, on Jennifer, but on the system that had unjustly imprisoned him and taken away ten and a half years of his life. He could have, in other words, chosen to keep himself and to let Jennifer Thompson remain in a locked-up prison of spiritual and emotional torment. But instead, what he did was reach out. He reached out and gave another person their life gave their life back. It's amazing. They're good friends now, Jennifer and Ronald. They, they've written a book together. 
And they travel quite extensively together, seeking to represent and work with and on behalf of of others who have been wrongfully accused. But I keep thinking back to that account of, of that room where they met after his release, where Jennifer talks about she's looking at this man and all she can see is grace and mercy. I keep thinking about that on this second Sunday of Easter because I wonder what people see when they look at us. When people look at us as as folks who have heard the story of the empty tomb, do they see grace and mercy? Do they see a hand reaching out or a hand being pulled away? Do they see people, in other words, who are seeking to fill that space where Easter happens? Do they encounter people who are living as if they have glimpsed an empty tomb. What do people see when they look at you and me? Do they see folks who are locked up like those disciples? Or do they see people who have gone out and who want to tell the world what they have seen? Because here's the thing, I, I don't really know how it all works. But what I do know is that What happened when Jesus came into that room long ago, that room full of people who were locked up in their fear and their grief and their worry? What I do know is that Jesus, he gave them back their lives. I know that because the very next story, guess what? They're not in that room anymore. They're out by the the lakeshore. They're out in the open of God's creation. There's this great encounter in that very next story where Jesus and Peter, they keep going back and forth. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes. And Jesus says, then follow me. In this story, lives are given back. So though I don't know how it works for us, I do have good hope. I have good hope that when we, you and me, when we forgive, when we go out and we serve, when we join hands and join our lives with with others, when we give others life back, I have good hope that when we do those things, we will not only encounter the remarkable, the unimaginable, the, the amazing grace, that we have come to know in Jesus Christ. But that in doing so, we will also discover that the weight of life, and particularly a life spent following that Jesus, I have good hope that we will find that the weight of that life is a lot less heavy than we imagine. Friends, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, May we live like that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.